Hello and welcome to the show. Two Temples is a podcast where I, Sheikha Marichka, talk to real people about real psychedelic experiences. We discuss how these experiences have helped us learn lessons and overcome personal issues. My goal is to help end the stigma surrounding psychedelics. You can help by sharing this podcast with your friends and on social media. I believe we can undo the decades of lies about psychedelics and expose their healing potential by sharing story after story until the truth is undeniable. In this two-part series, I talk with Gregory Lake, a lawyer and author living in Louisiana. We talk about what led him to write his first book entitled Psychedelics and Mental Health Series, Psilocybin. It's available on Amazon and hit number one new release in medical clinical psychology. His goal was to break down all the scientific research and information scattered around the internet surrounding psilocybin, make it more easily understandable, and bring it to one place. I done goofed and didn't click record right at the beginning of our call, so I missed the first minute or two of the conversation, but we just talked a bit about why we were running late, and recording started right after we got on topic. If you have a comment or something you'd like to share in the podcast, please email me at twotemplespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and enjoy. But from what I understand reading like Michael Pollan's book, and I address it in mine, is that there were other therapists and practitioners that were taking the LSD and other hallucinogens or psychedelics out of the office and dispensing them in less than professional settings. So it, it wasn't just Timothy Leary going out and turning everybody on. There were other actors, I guess a little bit more behind the scenes, that were also uh, taking you know, the medicine outside of the office and dispensing it less than professional settings. And so... Uh, the more strict people in the research field didn't like that, and they saw this aspect of it that they didn't like, and I think that sort of went to discredit some of the research that was done because, you know, back then you took the psychedelics before you administered them to anybody. So, you know, I, I think for a lot of other mainstream researchers that weren't on that end of the research spectrum, that kind of served to undercut what the ones who were doing the psychedelic research were doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, so when you say that, I, I read the first, I don't know, 10 or so pages of the book, kind of just the intro, and I, I never read that you actually did these substances. Is this more of like just a strictly research book, or is there experience behind it? So obviously, you know, I was an addict for a very long time, uh, 17 years, and so... You know, I did do psychedelics when I was, you know, younger, uh, teenage years, up and through college. Um, probably right around the, or after my mom died, not very long after, uh, was the first time I ever had uh, what the research would coin a mystical experience um, at a friend's ranch. We actually handpicked, uh, you know, our specimens uh, at the ranch and. To tell you today how much I consumed, I don't know. We did not weigh them out or anything. We just sort of munched on them. And they were um, fresh? They were fresh, yes. Um, and basically eating them straight out of the substrate. Um, and so, you know, that night I did have a mystical experience uh, on the ranch. And um, I was saying this in other podcasts I did. I, uh, you know, I, I had a I had a mystical experience and came to all these hardcore realizations and you know perspective shift and reached bliss. Um, but I was so far in my addiction at that time that I was not able to uh, integrate what I learned. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, but listen, fast forward six seven years when I did end up getting sober in rehab, those came back to me. When I got sober, um, when I was in the treatment facility, I noticed that I was a lot, e it was a lot easier and I was a lot quicker to pick up on spiritual principles and apply them. Um, and, and I, me personally, I'm relating that back to that experience because um, as I'm learning these spiritual principles in recovery and seeing them in action, I can't help every time but to think back to that experience. Yeah, so it sort of opened your mind to sort of a possibility back then and, and now. or and, and then when you're in the, the therapy, then you're able to sort of go back to that? Yeah, so, you know, for me, I think a lot of these experiences are information downloads. Um, 
you know, obviously the researchers won't touch on this, but I'll just tell you right now, my opinion is, is that a lot of what's going on in a mystical experience is coming from outside of the, the mind. Um, and there's a lot of theories. Is it like a quantum field or another dimension? I mean, I can't say that for sure, but I, I do believe that your mind becomes receptive to picking spiritual wisdom information from an outside source. Um, and I think what happened in my instance is that I actually stored that information. And when I got sober enough to not have a cloudy mind, it took me about six months. I was able to draw on that information to help me uh, work a spiritual program in recovery. So what do you think about the theory that um, our mind is sort of like a, a TV antenna and that our thoughts sort of come from the outside? Is that sort of what you're talking about or in a different way? Absolutely. Um, and so I think, well, I, you know, as far as regular thoughts or like a regular, you know, in a, in a just straight sober mindset, I'm not real sure, but I can tell you this. I do believe whenever you're in the psychedelic experience, if you're deep enough, you are most definitely uh, pulling information uh, from outside of the, the body. Yeah. So when you say that, do you think that it's coming from the... Um like the specimen itself or do you think it's coming from an actual uh, energy source or what are your thoughts on that I, I think that what the specimen does is open up the parts of your brain uh, that basically is your antenna or receptor in that there is some kind of spiritual dimension quantum field energy source that inputs the information once that antenna is open yeah so it's sort of the the, the switch and flips it yeah. on yeah yeah that that's my view again we're talking way outside the science here but I, I will say that my anecdotal research i think there's quite a few people that would at least to some extent agree with what i just said uh as far as the spiritual aspect of the psilocybin or psychedelic trip um so you know that's that obviously i don't I do kind of poke at this in the book. I, I basically say, look, the researchers will tell you there's certain things about this here mystical experience that we, we cannot explain, but we're not going to resort to talking in spiritual terms or mystical terms, you know, and they won't. They absolutely won't, which I get. I get. Look, you're a scientist. You want to believe everything has a material, <laughs> objective um, explanation. I get that. So I don't. I don't look down or, or bad upon the researchers for that because, look, they're working in a field and they have to maintain credibility. They're just working with what they have, um, you know, within the rules of their field. Right. But, you know, my view is that that part that they can't explain is exactly what we just talked about. Well, yeah, I think the problem is that we don't have a vocabulary to go along with it. You know, like when we try to explain these spiritual experiences or you know just whatever to do with psychedelics like we don't have the words like the, how do you describe this mothman that you know he flutters really weird and his, you know like it takes 10 million words just to describe one being and in a flash it's different you know like yeah. we just don't have the words to even describe the things let alone the messages that come along with it so it doesn't really help for them to kind of not accept that and sort of bring on a new vocabulary, I guess. Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that. Part of, um, they have a thing called the mystical experience questionnaire. That's how they judge the, uh, you know, how intense of a mystical experience people had. It's like a questionnaire. I personally haven't seen the questions, but it's talked about all through the research. And I do know that one aspect of that questionnaire is what's called ineffability. Like, how much of this experience can you just simply not put into words is basically what it amounts to. So they are measuring what we just talked about. How much of this experience can you literally not put into words? And so, you know, they're, they're aware of this, um, and they measure it, but, you know, at the end of the day, they, they don't want to acknowledge that 
you know, these things that are just completely unexplainable are happening or originating from outside your mind, which, I mean, to me, look, everything in my mind is in my mind. I should be able to explain at least to put into words everything that goes on in there. Am I correct? I mean, yeah, yeah I would think so. <laughs> I would hope so. Right. And, and, and Terrence McKenna actually put it really well. He said, you know, he is a, he by trade or, or, when he first started in school or got his degree, he was an art historian. He said, I know for a fact I've seen and studied every single motif pretty much known to man. But he said, like, when I do DMT or a really strong psilocybin experience, I see motifs that I've never, I cannot identify. He said, to me, that's telling me that, that what I'm seeing is coming from outside of the mind. And so that I, that's kind of to put it in his terms, and I kind of agree with that. Yeah, that's, that's cool. I, I kind of like the fact that we're so new into researching this sort of stuff, so it sort of feels like we're we're always diving into the unknown each trip. Yeah, we are. And I will tell you this, in the last sentence of my book, I, I posit that, you know, the researchers are diving deeper. They're going deeper. They're wanting to know more. But I, I personally think that this is one area where science could possibly meet the divine. I'm not saying that they'll ever see it or quantify it or, you know, any kind of measure be able to look at it, but I, I do think that they will run up on it, and at the very least, after years and years of research, say, look, this is just completely unexplainable. I, I know, think... It's a wild variable. Yeah, I think they, like the researchers... This is something you need to experience to really be able to research, you know, and to be because it's you're relying too much on somebody telling you about it. And like we were talking about, like there, there's no words to describe it. So like whenever I talk about my experiences to people that haven't tripped, like I sound crazy, you know, but then I explain it to somebody that that has tripped and. It almost doesn't really matter what substance it is. You know, as soon as somebody has a mushroom trip, then they sort of like, okay, I can sort of like picture what you mean, like, you know. But to the people that haven't experienced any sort of psychoactive drug, like you just don't really have the ability to picture it in your mind because it's just so out there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Do you agree with yeah. that? You're right. I mean... Look, I agree. People who have been there, you don't necessarily have to put it into any kind of certain terms for them to just completely understand what you're talking about. But, you know, other people, you, you try your best. And some people are receptive. Uh, some people, like you say, look at you like you're nuts. Yeah. Well, I, a big problem is, too, is like the messages that you get. Most of the time, they're not verbal. You know, they're no. feelings or they're, you know, it's not an actual something talking to you it's a feeling you get from like this morphing object that like has a presence and so i think a lot of the information that's relayed through these experiences is emotional wisdom okay does that make sense like i noticed um when i started integrating this 2010 experience that i just became very mature emotionally um and, and wise emotionally in that I'm able to feel my emotions, but I'm also able to check my emotions at the same time and, and you know, decide in a fairly, you know, reasonable manner how to act upon them, if that makes sense. Whereas I see a lot of people who I know haven't, you know, done psychedelics or, and it's perfectly fine, don't get me wrong, but... I see them acting on emotions almost instinctively. Yeah, okay. So I was sort of talking to a friend about this today, and we're kind of relating it to like a transmission where a lot of people run off of like this automatic transmission of emotions where it just like shifts by itself as you go and you are sort of along for the ride. Whereas <clears throat> there's like some people who can, you know, feel that emotion feel the engine and how it's running and then you can like shift as you need is that sort yeah. of how you feel like you shifted from that automatic transmission of emotions yeah. to that, that i think that is a great analogy 
Um, yeah, I mean, look, the the last time I acted off a of notion and didn't control it was when my sister called me and cussed me out for writing this book. Um, you know, I kind of got out of character there, but you know, I quickly after it happened realized what I did, and you know, told myself that I need to correct that. I, as an adult, my personal opinion is I should never really raise my voice at anyone, and I did it her. Obviously, I care about her so much. That's why she was able to kind of get to me like that. Um, right. But, but other than that, no. I mean, I look. There, every day, people say stuff that you know, kind of rubs me wrong. But I never act on it, you know, or act out or say something stupid. Yeah. You know, but, but I see people doing it all the time. You know, someone comes at them with a bad attitude, they match it with that same bad attitude, just instantly and instinctively. Um, and I just, I've, I've gotten away from that. And can I say it's directly attributable to psychedelics? No, but it seems to be the one factor in me that is distinguishable from a lot of the other people I see acting contrary to that. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like it definitely has given me more control over my, my emotions or at the yeah. very least I'm more aware of them. So I'm able to. Like if I'm starting to get anxious or I'm feeling a little down or whatever, I'm, I don't know, uh, not like I'm able to every time or whatever, but I'm able to sort of like calm myself or take a minute yeah. and take a breath and just, you know, step back and not act on it. I'm learning yes, anyway, you know, I'm, that's one thing that I'm really focusing on through my psychedelic um, trips and whatnot. So yeah. I understand uh, what you mean. Good goal. I mean, look especially as a father and a husband, um, you know, and being in, you know, you work and everything. And I guess you're kind of the leader of the household. Like you, you, nope. stable. <laughs> well, look, you're a role, let me put it like this. You're a role model for your children. right? Yeah, for sure. And so you want them to look up to you as a stable, uh, you know, emotionally stable person because, and this goes to a point I heard the other day. I heard a neuroscientist say something to the effect that show me a seven-year-old child and I'll show you the man or the woman because children apparently by the age of seven have received the majority of the programming that they will have in their subconscious mind that will determine their actions, thoughts, and behavior pretty much for the rest of their life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I see a lot of my um, how I act in my daughter. Like I, I, you know, I'll, I'll do something and then the next day I'll see her sort of do the same thing and like react the same way or whatever. And it's just, it's funny how quickly they pick up on you and, you know, yeah. whoever they're around. So uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's good that, like you say, that your journey is to be emotionally intelligent and control your emotions because that's only going to go to serve your children later on in life. I, I promise you that. Yeah, I want to give somebody, I want to give her an idea of who to look for, you know. Like a, yeah. That's a big problem these days, I think, is not positive role models. And not saying I'm the best, and nor will I ever be, but it's something I aim to be anyway, <laughs> one day. That's, that's all we can do, man, is yeah. just give it our percent you know when I was in treatment um, one big part of the program was positive role modeling like for people who are younger in the program um, and it's like just to think about that concept and and to consciously work on it is an amazing thing because it it, it, it helps it helps the person trying to be a positive role model just as much as it helps the person looking up or you know emulating the positive role model i believe yeah because you learn for yourself while you're trying to teach them yeah that's what i've noticed so let me uh let me shift real quick to a question i got asked the other day um, okay and i've thought about it since i last answered it and i'm not going to answer contrary to it but I just want to sort of add on it. And the question was this, and let me ask you if you're aware, you know, Michael Poland wrote the book, you know, uh, changing the mind, such and such, you know, the psychedelic book he wrote, you're, you're aware of that book. Okay. Right? I haven't read it, but I'm aware of it. 
Okay, so, you know, in that he actually uh, describes, he actually goes out and takes psychedelics for the book with some of these, you know, independent physicians or doctors that are letting people do that, I guess, on the West and East Coast. Are you familiar with that? Okay. Uh, in the States, you're talking? Yeah, in the States. Okay. And uh, so, anyway, and, and also, too, you got to realize when Michael Pollan wrote his book, you know, he was able to talk to the researchers and talk to all these people. Um, but what happened is that I think he went on the Joe Rogan show or maybe he made a statement somewhere. They asked him, you know, you wrote this great book about psychedelics and how good they are. So, like, what do you think about, you know, Denver decriminalizing psilocybin? And he, he basically shunned it. You know, he said, no, these aren't. You know, these aren't substances that need to leave the lab or be, you know, outside the medical establishment. So someone asked me a question the other day, um, you know, what do you think about that? You know, why, why do you think he answered like that? And at the time I said, well, it probably had to do with the fact that he spent most of his time writing the book with the researchers because that's what they want. The, the researchers want to keep it within the medical establishment. Uh, they want psilocybin to be administered through a central pharmacy um, and only administered, you know, with a licensed clinician. And I get it. Look, I get it. But I guess it struck the individual that asked me as odd that Michael Pollan would say something like that. And so I want to add a little bit on to that as well is that and, – and I'm not – trust me, I'm not saying anything bad about Michael Pollan. He wrote a wonderful book, and he is a ten times better writer than me. <laughs> but I think that Michael Pollan probably lacks enough experience with regular folk. Like actually, just life experience, you mean? Well, you know, here's the deal. Is I doubt he's with a lot of people every day who are suffering from depression, addiction. Yeah, um, that's what I meant by life experience. Yeah, who are, who are absolutely miserable suffering from these ailments that psilocybin is being shown to treat. Right. Um, and so – Maybe there's a little bit of insensitivity on his part, not intentionally, um, you know, to the fact that there's a mental health crisis in this nation. The medicines that are being served are, are ineffective in a large group of people. People are dying from heroin overdoses and all kinds of other addiction-related illnesses and diseases, you know. So that's where my perspective comes from is that, look, these people need help. You know, and not all these people have money to afford to go to uh, a therapist and pay what's probably going to be a substantial sum to have psychedelic therapy, you know. Um, that's why I support stuff like the Denver and the state initiatives that are coming through. I actually, in my opinion, think that Oregon has the best solution coming down the pipe. Um, but that's what, what do they have coming? I, I'm not aware of it. And so you have kind of a spectrum here. The researchers are calling for the FDA to reschedule it to no more restrictive than a Schedule 4, and basically at that time it would be you can go to your therapist, they can dispense it, and you can have a session with them if you have like a mental illness like depression and it's treatment resistant. So you've tried all these other pharmaceuticals. You know, you've tried uh, – cognitive behavior therapy or whatever they have to offer so is that sort of like how they rolled out the marijuana thing how like you've tried a bunch of other things and now we'll try marijuana now it's just the same with mushrooms is it just a stepping stone you know to, to be honest with you I'm, I'm not too informed on exactly how that marijuana thing rolled out um, obviously it was it, it, like in California yeah it started off as medical um, it, it's kind of a different Mode, treatment modality though because with marijuana they would write you a script you could take it home yeah so, this would have to be in a, a, yeah, a setting administered in a professional setting um and, and i got another issue we'll bring up just a minute about that so you have them on one end of the spectrum that's what they want then you have california statewide measure that's going to come up Next year, because COVID put it off for this year, they weren't able to get enough signatures this year. But next year, I was assured that it will be on the ballot. It's basically anybody over the age of 18 can propagate, 
uh, and consume psilocybin mushrooms, and then people with a license can sell them uh, commercially. Uh, so that's at the other end of the spectrum. Now, Oregon's kind of in the middle. What they're proposing is that they have licenses for both uh, psilocybin facilities and then psilocybin facilitators. So it'd be people who own facilities who can grow uh, for retail sale and then facilitators who are licensed to actually administer uh, the psilocybin. And so, yes, it would occur in a quasi-medical setting, but here's the, here's the kicker here with Oregon is that you don't have to be diagnosed or you won't have to have been diagnosed with a mental illness uh, in order to receive those services. So a perfectly healthy individual could go into a facilitator and receive psilocybin services. Okay. And, and so, how do you feel ahead. about that? Like, I, I, I kind of want to hear your opinion before I yeah, put mine on. I, mean, I kind of, so look, the safety profile to me of psilocybin really warrants what California is doing, <clears throat> in my opinion, okay? Now, I realize, though, for a lot of people who might be on the fence, that might not be palatable. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? And Maybe just to be clear, California is the ones that want to... All, all open, 18 and older. All open, okay, yeah. Yeah, all open, 18 and older. Um, you know, I'm sure for California voters, that'll it'll, it'll get pushed through. I, I'm pretty confident it will. I'm sure. But you, know, you got to realize some of these other states, that's kind of radical. Um, and so I think Oregon represents like a fair medium that would be palatable for people that are on the fence or maybe even some people oppose, um, but yet still open it up to the widest audience possible or the widest uh, population possible. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I... so here's what I'm wondering. So here's here's some numbers, and I don't know if we could ever quantify this, but I think what would be really interesting to see you know in Oregon the governor declared basically mental health and addiction a crisis you know it's it's in crisis mode there and so and that's kind of the justification that the people with the legalization movement or decriminalization movement are using up there along with you know the scientific evidence you know to push their agenda um, it would be interesting if we could ever quantify how many healthy people are prevented from having to go into the mental health, uh, you know, zone uh, or into a therapist's office because they proactively use psilocybin. So, you know, maybe some of them might be borderline, have depressive symptoms or maybe be susceptible to it, but yet they choose to, you know, of their own free will and volition, go ahead and engage in psilocybin, you know, uh, consumption. And that prevents them from ever entering the mental health. Realm. Yeah, I, I definitely think that is a factor and not just psilocybin, but psychedelics in general and psychoactive drugs for the most part in general, like uh, marijuana too. like um, if it does have these cancer fighting abilities, like who knows how many cancer cells have been killed with them you know like it's it's hard to tell and it's hard to do studies on stuff that we can't really observe like that. Yeah, no, I, I get it. And, and another thing, too, so going along with the cancer studies, they, um, and they don't overtly say this in the studies, but I kind of take that, you know, they gave it to these people to fight their end-of-life terminal uh, depression and anxiety, you know, facing the end of your life. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that a lot of mental uh, health issues, and it was highly effective. Well, I'm of the mindset, and I think a lot of people are, that, look, when you're in that situation, if you keep a positive mindset, you're probably going to live longer. And some of the people in the study that they followed up with, to me, it struck me as like, wow, they actually lived years beyond, you know, uh, the study. So I, I just wonder if how many of those people actually put were able to add some time to their life uh, just by engaging in the psilocybin and keeping a positive mindset and being able to push through longer than what, you know, science or the doctors uh, have pegged them to have. Yeah, I feel like our mind has a lot more power than we give it credit for. You know, like each study that we do, there's a placebo um, variable, right? So what strikes me about that, like what you're just talking about, is that it almost seems like 
when you do these psychedelic drugs, it almost like lets you kind of get into that placebo mindset and like raise your vibrations and sort of give your body a better chance of fighting itself. I believe that wholeheartedly. I think that you know your mindset really determines, um, you know, what's going on inside. Yeah, and and like you're not so caught up on dying, you know, like you don't have yeah. that that like sort of mental cancer just eating at you. You can sort of break that apart, let go of that, and then you're sort of able to be present and accept you know what time you have left I guess yeah you know I, I will say this and I'll go ahead and admit this um, I kind of teared up a little bit when I was reading through uh, you know those cancer studies just to think about the number of people um, that needlessly suffered um, you know a horrible death or I'm not going to say horrible but needlessly suffered through that end of life period uh, because they didn't have access to what's essentially a natural earth medicine that is picked from the ground and complete within itself. Yeah, there's actually a movement here in Canada going on. I'm not. I'm pretty sure it's in BC. They seem to be the most kind of proactive um, province. But it, it seems, from what I read, they're trying to uh, decriminalize or legalize. Uh, psilocybin for people who are basically on their deathbed and i i totally i want that <laughs> where do i vote <laughs> yeah yeah no doubt i mean and y'all are doing i tell you what y'all y'all have a good group up there in canada um and, and i'm talking in terms of like what i see on facebook on the online forums like y'all have a solid core group of people man that are like real deal activists that post real good quality content and have really good quality comments on it, you know, and I, I will tell you this, there's a core group of about five or six, you included people from Canada that I'm buddies with on Facebook who really supported me through this project, man. And like, I just can't give enough thanks, you know, and, and I tell them all the time, you know, there were times, um, you know, throughout this process where I thought, you know, damn, this, this book is stupid. No one's going to want to buy it. And, and I would get online and, you know, say something about it. And then here we go. They would just push me up every time. Like, you got this. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Let me know as soon as it comes out. Um, and so I just can't, you know, I'm just very thankful for that because it, they, they pushed me through to the end. And I, I guess you probably saw today I was actually – on the bestseller list in the mental health category uh, for a while today. Looks like I've gone back down a little bit, but I did spend some time in the bestseller ranking uh, on a very broad um, category. So it's it's been very successful and it's picking up. Uh, and I'm just very thankful for that, man. I've, I've had a, quite a few people tell me, you know, the research is complete, that this is pretty much everything. I mean, I think there was one or two studies that weren't like trials that were like survey type studies that I didn't include. Uh, but other than that, every single um, time that they've opened up shop and gone into the, the lab and had people come in and dosed, and I, I included every single one of those. Yeah, I, I, I like I said, I read the first, I think it said page 16, but uh, quite a few of those pages were like just you know table of contents and the intro and stuff. Yeah, so I think yeah. I read about ten pages. I got right to the yeah. to the end of your um, introduction basically, and I saw yeah. that you uh, thanked Jigs D. And I actually know, you know him. He's he's a he's a good dude. Like you know him personally? No, not know him personally, but like oh. on Facebook, I met him not too long oh, ago. Yeah, he he's a really good dude. He's one of the main ones, really. Um, that that you know helped me through this and continues to and man I, I told him one day I'd like to come up there and go fishing with him or something but I oh, yeah. I I do want to make a trip to Canada to visit some of y'all man I, and I say that I really do I've always wanted to come to Canada um you know so I, I want to come snowboarding up there sometime that'd be awesome yeah it'd be cool yeah. if we could sort of like plan a, a like a festival or something once all this COVID yeah. shit's done yeah. with and then we could all sort of meet up. And then it's not like, you know, it'd be easier that way anyway. You know, there's, with the way this thing's kind of going, um, 
doing some kind of a meetup or retreat or something to that effect would definitely be a possibility. So let's just keep all keep in touch, obviously, and you know, try to make something shape. Yeah, I'm down. I think that'd be a lot of fun because like everybody's for the most part so like minded, you know, like we would have good conversations and yeah, learn absolutely. a lot. And look, just to the outside world, us meeting up and showing solidarity um, gives more credence to our movement. Well, yeah, because then we're not so bound to where we were born, right? <laughs> like, I've, I've sort of stuck around home my whole life. So, like, yeah, to go a few provinces over to meet people like you or go over, go to the States or whatever, like, it's it's totally worth it, especially because we're able to do that now. Like, a hundred well 200 years ago you weren't really able to do that you had to take a big old boat or whatever to get anywhere like across the ocean you know now we have world travel like let's take advantage of it (laughs) yeah and you know look these issues these mental health issues transcend obviously borders and you know time and everything else so you know the the fight even though you know, like the legalization chapter in my book focused on what's going on here in the U.S. Okay, I um, think we've teased enough about the book, like in, in the sense of we haven't like named it or anything. Can you plug your book here real quick and where we can yeah. buy it? So yeah, so my book is it's entitled uh, Psychedelics and Mental Health Series. Uh, my first book is the subtitle Psilocybin. Um, it will be a series of books on various psychedelic substances that they're currently doing research on, you know, in regards to treating mental health. Um, so my first book is psilocybin. Uh, I chose it because I have the most experience with it. And I think to be honest with you to date, it's had the most modern studies done with it. Um, so I knew that there would be a good book for me to start with a lot of material to cover. Um, and so I just kind of set out to, and here's where I got the idea. I'll cover the idea real quick is that when I first wanted to write a book, I was going to do the ancient like history of use of psychedelics throughout the world. Well, that'd be a cool one too. You should. Yeah, no. And, and it's, there's been a good one covered uh, or one that covered it. It's uh, called the long trip by Paul Devereaux. Uh, I recommend it for anyone that's interested in learning about the history of the use of psychoactive substances throughout time. Um, he does a really good job, really well-researched book. Um, and so that's kind of one of the first ones I picked up and read. But it kind of evolved because as I was doing my online research is when I really started picking up on the fact that there's all these studies that have been done on psilocybin, but at the time I started writing the book, they're kind of scattered all over the Internet in various articles. Uh, some people would actually post the scientific journals, things like that, but I could never find a single resource. Like it troubled me because I wanted to have the complete picture, you know. Yeah. I want to know everything that's been done in one resource. Um, and a lot of times the articles didn't do a very good job at explaining the the most pertinent parts um, of the studies. So that's why I kind of set out myself to put all this together. And you know, I noticed again that there wasn't a single resource. So I said, you know what? I'm going to gather up all these studies, I'm going to read through them, I'm going to highlight them, and I'm going to pull out the pertinent parts to where, you know, I in a page or two, or maybe three, I can explain the whole study to you, the important parts, so that way you can, you know, forego having to search the internet um, and then read a, a 10 to 20 page study couched in all kinds of scientific terms um, and just really get a good understanding of the state of the science. And so, you know, and I've told few people this you know look there's a few grammatical errors throughout the book look I, I, that's the way she goes I, I, I doubt people are going to buy my book for the eloquent prose I think it's more for like the actual information in there and so the people who have picked it up that I know are privy to the research have all given me thumbs up on you know this is a complete set um, of the research so I'm happy about that that was my goal and, uh, you know, I'm just real blessed that it's been doing so well. And, you know, I, I take the time now here to, to thank everyone who has bought one or who does buy one. Um, you, you're doing something overt to support the movement um, because it's only going to add fuel to my fire uh, to keep using my talents and abilities to do writing and reaching out to more and more people 
uh, to try to change some minds and also to, to arm those who are already psychedelic supporters uh, with the information that they need to go out and make good cogent arguments uh, why psychedelics should be used at the very least in a therapeutic setting. Yeah, because a lot of us uneducated folk who read these studies, a lot of the terminology we can't really understand. I'm speaking for myself anyway. I shouldn't say we. Look, look, it's it's tough because, look, to sit here and tell you that I didn't have to Google terms quite a bit reading through the studies, I would be lying to you. I did. Um, but I did go ahead and put that work in and, you know, tried to relay everything in as uh, – you know, layman's terms as possible, um, you know, just to make it easy for everybody. Yeah, from what I read, it was very um, readable, I guess. <laughs> it's kind of a goofy way to say yeah. that, but it was like it. I just wanted to kind of keep reading, you know. Well, good deal, man. I, I'm glad. And, and that's kind of what I've gotten back is that, you know, and I also wanted to make a book, too, that was for, you know, if you had the, obviously had the time to do it, you could sit down in maybe two to four sittings uh, and finish the book. But, look, I realize everybody has life um, to sit here and tell you I could sit down and read that book in two to four sittings would probably be a stretch. So I do understand, but, you know, that was my theory or my purpose or, you know, what I was trying to do with, you know, the length and how I sort of laid everything out. Well, yeah, as I looked through it, it seemed very, like it was very well organized. And uh, it, it, like you said, it's not very long. I was able to get to page 16 in just a few minutes. And like there was a lot of information there. Granted, it was only the uh, the intro, but it was still, you know, it, it didn't take me an hour to get through it. It was very fluid. Yeah, that's good, man. I, I, uh, you know, I didn't get an editor this time. Um, as a matter of fact, my, my first chapter actually was edited uh, by my boss um, at, at the law firm. Me and him write legal briefs together all the time. So, um, Can I ask what kind of lawyer you are? Yeah, so we do uh, maritime work. We represent people. In, in America, it's called the Jones Act, which covers people who, uh, who work on the water. Uh, we, we represent them whenever they're injured in the Jones Act against the law that covers them. So we do maritime work. We, we do maritime personal injury. So is that anything from, like, the Navy to fishing boats? or? Uh, well, the Navy obviously would be covered. They would have their own thing, I guess. Possibly we could cover someone in the Navy, yeah. But, no, it's usually people working on the river on towboats. Okay. Uh, pushing, pushing freight up and down the Mississippi. Uh, sometimes we get people fishing in the Gulf, um, but it's just a real blessing. And, and I guess I kind of live a hippie's dream in a way because <laughs> I, I get to get up every day and stick it to the man, you know. Yeah. Because let me tell you, ninety-nine percent of our clients didn't get there because they got hurt and the company decided to do right by them. Um, you know, it's uh, it's because they threw them under the bus, and that's why they end up at our office. And so it's it's very motivating to get up every day and go fight for those people. Yeah, I bet. That would really feel almost Robin Hood-like. <laughs> it, it does, and it's funny you say that. My boss says he's Robin Hood all the time. Hell yeah. Um, but, you know, that's we're just those type of people. You know, my boss is one of, you know, granted he does not engage in psychedelics and I don't, you know, he's such a good person and has a good family. I don't know how much he would really benefit from them. Uh, but we're just different type of people than the lawyers on the other side. You know, we, we wake up believing in the good of people and we believe in hardworking uh, citizens of, you know, Americans, but anybody who wakes up every day and works hard like yourself to feed their kids those are the people we stick up for, you know, uh, the ones that, that, you know, sometimes struggle to put food on the table. That's who we stick up for. Well, um, we it, appreciate it. That's for sure. Yeah. And it's, and it's a good deal to, you know, uh, get a good number for those people and, and set them up to where as long as they're, you know, smart with their money, they can, you know, live good the rest of their lives. Um, and so th that's just a good feeling, man. And I'm very blessed and, you know, when I was in rehab, during the last six months, I was in the reentry phase where you get your own job and start saving up your own money. Well, 
I couldn't get a legal job at first. Um, I applied to about 50 places and got no calls back. So I was literally working at a bakery, um, taking out trash and washing dishes. You know, a very humbling experience. And I, I learned so much at that job. But, you know, I kept trying to will into existence this job. Um, and one day I was back there washing dishes and I was really far in my feelings about it. But I finally just looked up and said, you know what? I'm going to stop trying to will this into existence. I'm going to give this to the universe and just trust that it's going to put me wherever I'm needed at any given time. And I shit you not, within a week after that, the job I'm working at now contacted me through my sister. Um, and I was working. And, and let me tell you, if you would have asked me that day, I gave it up. Um, you know, what, if, you know if the universe would have said, Greg, all right, you're giving up to me, so I'm going to give you the job that you want. Go ahead and describe it for me. I would not have been able to describe for you at that point a better position than what I ended up at as far as what my wants and desires were. So you, you more so allowed the universe to I did. give I did. you the position or give you the opportunities than trying so to force I, it. That's it. I came to realize that and this is kind of a recovery concept too, is that, you know, you have to accept. And part of accepting it is giving, you know, stop trying to control everything. Just accept it for what it is and let everything just happen. And once I started doing that, and it's been true throughout my life uh, since then, you know, when I find stuff didn't go in my way, it's usually because I'm trying to make it go a certain way. But if I just stop doing it, what I desire usually ends up happening. Yeah. You just, yeah, get into the flow of everything and yeah. you sort of like just do your part and things will come to you instead of like trying to, yeah, reach out and grab something. Yeah. And, and it kind of related to this book too, you know, uh, before I actually started like sitting down and making headway on it. I had so much will. This is how I wanted this to go. This is how I wanted this to go, you know, and, and it really prevented me from ever even sitting down and starting it. Uh, but once I just came to the realization, like, look, I'm just going to write this book, see what it looks like at the end, and just go from there, you know. Once I kind of gave up control and just started writing and let it flow, that's when I started making headway, and, you know, it ended up pretty much substantially uh, how you see it today. Yeah, I, I feel like a big problem with how society sort of works right now is people get this idea of what they want to do and then they pursue it wholeheartedly which is good but a lot of the time it ends up in like you know somebody goes to hollywood and or a lot of people go to hollywood and it just it, it doesn't work because you're trying too hard and like the people that really make it it seems to come fluidly to them it seems to be you know like you can tell when somebody's a natural musician or when somebody's a natural like actor or whatever or or like a natural born to be lawyer or you know like it's just there's the power inside that just like wills it that way and, and so I had this kind of explained to me the other day in terms that really made a lot of sense. And it was this. It was basically said that, look, when you're trying to will something into existence, you're limiting the universe's options to give you what it ultimately is that you desire. Really all you need is the desire and the belief that what you, what you ultimately want is going to manifest itself. That's it. Don't say – you know, I'm going to make a million dollars writing books this year. Don't say that. If you want to make a million dollars, just be, just believe that that's what's going to happen and just go on about I'm not saying not do anything, but don't limit the universe in ways that it can bless you. Yeah, because what if the universe wants to give you $2 million? I mean, but when you're so focused on I'm just going to be writing books – and there's other opportunities it's throwing at you, you're not even looking that way. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of what I meant by, like, wholeheartedly just focused right on one thing. But then you're, you're no, I don't want to go do that and experience that and maybe, you know, take something home with me. I want to just focus on this and, you know, everything else is on the wayside. But you might be really good at that thing or that next thing or, you know, like, it, it, I think that it's all about 
just experiencing something and then like finding what comes naturally to you. Yeah. And let me tell you a funny, so like since, you know, since I've been sober about five years, um, and I think this kind of relates back to my psychedelic experience, 2010, like since I've been sober, like the universe will send me signs. Um, it I'll just cite a few examples real quick. So whenever I, uh, I, I took the bar exam here in Louisiana, right? Um, took it back in July. And, and after I took the bar exam, obviously there's a lot of consternation after you take the bar exam. Did I pass? Did I pass? Did I pass? Um, so. And how long did you have to wait? Uh, it's usually about two to three months. I think it was about three months. Okay. That's time. a lot of anxiety then. <laughs> yeah. 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 You could feel the angst. Uh, and let me tell you something real quick. You want to talk about anxiety? walk into a room full of like 300 people taking a bar exam. Oh, Jesus. I bet that energy just felt fucking just ready to explode. (laughs) So so, uh, let me revert back. So while I'm taking the bar, I'm taking, I'm staying in a hotel room in, uh, in new Orleans. Um, and one night, I think it might've been the night before the second day. Um, Anyways, my mom, my dead mother, I visited her or she visited me in a dream. I basically was walking into her bathroom and she was in her mirror, like doing her makeup and stuff. And she turned around and looked at me and smiled in my dream. Uh, so about a month and a half later when I'm waiting on the bar results, this is crazy. I, uh, I had a friend from rehab that I had been working out with. Well, we go and work out and usually I would take him back to his house and then hang out for maybe 15, 20 minutes before I headed out. Well, on this particular night, just out of nowhere, um, he whips out some, some heroin man and starts to chop up a line right there. And I felt it at the time. I said, Whoa, I am coming to a spiritual crossroads right now, right now. Like it is sink or swim. Um, and I decided to, to, I decided not to do it. Um, I, I realized something told me like this, this decision right here is a big one, um, which, you know, looking back is a no brainer, but you know, it, it hit me at that time. Well, as soon as I left, which was pretty much immediately after that, um, I got in my truck and I'm going down the road and an Oasis song comes on. It's the Wonderwall song. <laughs> and nice. There's a certain lyric where they say, dream a dream, she never dies. And as soon as I heard that lyric, my mind went straight back to the dream about my mother at the bar exam, and I got chills straight down my spine, and I just knew at that point that I had passed the bar exam. Wild. Yeah, and it I never had a doubt past that point. And then how long after that did you get the results? It was probably month or so okay so that was okay yeah. well good on you for saying no man i bet that was yeah yeah no it's, it's hard it's crazy, man. and so it's, it's kind of teaching me that you know we come to these spiritual crossroads where we have a decision to do the right thing you know by ourselves and by other people um that it's important to do the right thing yeah i i sort I of sorry go ahead comes later but let me tell you the second one because it relates to this book so uh, I had just started writing the book, and I'm driving down a road here in Baton Rouge that's lined by oak trees. Um, and I got my windows just barely cracked, maybe half an inch, maybe probably like a quarter of an inch, just barely cracked. And it's a sunny day, no wind, and I'm driving up towards this red light, and for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking about the book, and I'm like, is this thing going to do well? And then I thought, I wonder if the universe would send me a sign that it's going to do well. And almost before I could finish that thought, a piece of pine straw comes through that small crack in my window and smokes me in the face. (laughs) Yeah, for real. And again, I, and this is how I know when I get the signs because chills will go immediately down my spine. Um, chills down the spine, chills down the spine. And so is it I sort collect- of like a deja vu sort of feeling where it's just like that instant realization or is it like legit, like chills? Like, yeah, it's legitimate chills for me. I'm not saying that might be universal for other people, but right. for me, it is. it's like, whoa. And so I collected the pine straw, put it in a Ziploc bag and I still have it here in my computer table. 
Um, Little lucky charm. Yeah, and look, you know, I got I got on the bestseller list in eleven days. So yeah, so, that's uh, awesome. Proud of you, man. But it's a good I, cause too. Yeah. So look, I, the, if you're open to it, the universe can send you signs. Um, I think that you have to be on a certain spirit. And I'm not saying I'm perfect spiritually. I'm not not saying that at all. But I think that if you're on a certain spiritual plane, that it probably sends everybody signs, but you, you have to be at a certain wavelength or vibration to pick it up. Does that make sense? Yeah. In, in a certain mindset, at least, to like be observant and sort of aware that a sign yeah. could come to you. I will say this, every time I've gotten one, it's been at the time where I'm kind of yearning for a sign, like in times of uncertainty, you know, and actually in the second instance, like right when I actually thought about looking for one, bam, right through the window. And so I've, I've driven down that road again and look, the closest pine tree to the road is probably 300 yards. Is there, uh, do you think that's symbolic in any way? Like does a well, pine tree resonate in any sort of way? originally from in east texas northeast texas is they call it like the land of the pines like it's nothing but rolling pine forest huh yeah <laughs> yeah what do you um, do in the universe <laughs> yeah no it's it's crazy so you know look i think these these plant medicines uh you know in psychedelics can really open people up to all different kinds of aspects of life in the universe. Um, and it's just, you know, some people just have to take a leap of faith. Uh, w one thing I see, and let me know your opinion on this, because the science that I've studied, you know, through writing this book has all been macro dose, basically. You know, they're studying people at high dose, and most right. doses on average equal to about five dried grams. Um, that's that's the average dose they're giving these people. Uh, obviously, in a synthesized capsule, you know, in a synthesized form in a capsule. Um, okay, so but, when I read the first bit of your book, um, you stopped at five grams um, when you're kind of explaining the, yeah, so the doses. You know what's funny about that is I actually had on Reddit found uh, a guide that went to 20 grams and once it got like above seven the description was so funny man like very funny but the reason why i didn't include it is because people who don't know anything about it who aren't really hip to it would probably be scared um if they read it you know yeah yeah because it sort of it takes experiencing those lower doses yeah, to understand just, the higher ones funny you know because once you've experienced you know it's all harmless you know or for the most part harmless so it's, it's funny but you know I could also when I read it I obviously glean through a lot of the information with the mindset of someone who's never experienced anything like this so that's why I omitted it I, look I, I think people you know should go deep me um, but I realize why people would be hesitant to I get it I completely get it um, and so kind of back to my point was that and, and that's another reason why I stopped at the five gram mark is because that's the that's what they're giving in the study so I wanted to give my reader kind of a you know just a brief synopsis of what something like that would be like um, but I see a lot of micro I'm on I'm a member of a lot of micro dosing forums and I, and I think my view of it is this is that look if you really want to overcome your depression you don't, you don't have to take psilocybin forever. You know, they're microdosing, and, and they act like psilocybin's like going to change their brain chemistry, and it's not. You know, during the acute phase, yeah, um, but after that, there's no long-term changes in brain chemistry. And so I'm not saying that microdosing is not effective. I'm not at all. I, I've heard tons of stories uh you know, showing, you know, and I, and I tend to believe people, you know, they say, look, I've been microdosing, it's, you know, a whole new lease on life, et cetera, et cetera. I believe it. But I think some of these people are doing this microdosing, really just substituting for the antidepressant, just taking it all the time. Uh, and, you know, when you mention to a lot of those people, look, you're going to need to go deep. Like, they don't, like, the thought of that is just completely uh, out of bounds to them. 
Like, no, I, uh, I, I took two grams and oh my God, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and when I hear it, to me, I'm hearing it's your ego. Your ego's probably has a lot to do with your depression. Um, you got to push the ego aside and really look from a different perspective and see what's causing your depression. And then the, really the hardest part of the trip is the next day, putting in all that you learn into action. Yeah, I feel like the the most effective part of it is the higher doses, you know, because like at lower yeah. doses, it's sort of like, like you said, more of a numbing agent. Whereas yeah. the higher doses, it's like going to therapy with, a god in a way you know like the, just this like yeah. utmost superior being that like shows you what's what the issues are and like if you're willing to accept it and put your ego aside and you know change and allow change then you know that's where you get the healing from that, that's it uh, you hit the nail on the head there and um so again you know i'm not gonna I'm not going to sit here and say, I'm just not prepared to sit here and say that um, it's not going to work. Yeah, um, like I think it has benefits, but after, or like maybe to get yourself comfortable with it and then do the macro dose and then like afterwards do micro doses. But I, I think, yeah, a majority of the healing is with, especially with the bad trips. Like I, I seem to learn the most by you know, those tough lessons. And I, I don't mean bad trips of like getting stuck or like getting arrested by cops or like, you know, getting hurt, but just the sense of um, just your ego sort of being attacked. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm skeptical of microdosing. I just think some of the people who are resorting to microdosing might be better served, um, you know, trying to macrodose. And, and let me yeah. put this: I never suggest anybody to take anything, really. Um, obviously, that would be between them and a medical professional. Um, I'm just kind of relating my view of what the research says and what might or might not be effective. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not a doctor. I can't recommend anybody take anything um, and don't do so. But, you know, again, I, I guess I can sort of give my opinion on what I think the research says. Uh, but I, I would like to see uh, more research done. I, I really haven't found a study on microdosing psilocybin. Um, and if anybody who's listening to this is aware of one, please get in contact with me and let me know because I would love, love, love um, – to check it out yeah do you have an email or something we could get yeah so in the email is easy um my email is psychedelics and mental health all one syntax uh at gmail.com and then uh facebook greg lake g-r-e-g-l-a-k-e and then i also have a facebook group uh which is psychedelics and mental health so uh plenty of places to come find me i'm a very approachable person I pretty much will talk to anybody and, and I love talking and meeting new people uh, and I will say this like this book journey has been awesome uh, since I published like a week and a half ago like just the amount of just cool good people uh, that I've met from all over the world um, is just amazing and, and I will say that this book has gotten a lot of attention worldwide um, I've had people from uh, pretty much everywhere asked me about it because obviously Amazon doesn't serve every country or region. Uh, so I've had people message me from all over asking about, you know, can I get them a copy? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it reached up here in Canada pretty quick. Well, yeah, but I mean, I will say this. I, I did some marketing to some Canada people. I had Jigs D on my side, you know, so that probably had a lot to do with it. That's marketing. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. Whatever. No, it, it's it's cool, man. I love it. Um, you know, uh, you never know. Maybe one day I'll have the chance to travel the world and and you know give talks on the book or educate people, um, on this medicine. And that would you know that would obviously be a big blessing as well. Well, yeah, and you're uh, kind of posting about thinking about writing a book on MDMA as well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely am. And in, in, in that post uh, that you're referring to also, you know, admitted that I kind of uh, had been on the fence um, about it. But, you know, after hearing the comments the other day, um, I, I think I'm going to do it. Look, it's it's got a lot of, uh, of attention and it's it's and here's what's really attractive to it for me or for it is that it's helping veterans you know and i support veterans 100 percent um you know combat veterans coming home and having trouble there, there's a high suicide rate amongst them i think i've heard a figure and don't quote me on this but like 17 a day commit suicide or some outrageous number so you know if 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 it's quasi psychedelic you know, and I think probably about half people do consider it, half don't. But considering how much relief people are getting, and it's Schedule One status, I'm going to go ahead and write a book on it. I mean, if I can raise awareness and educate people on a substance that's like helping veterans that much, I'm I'm good with having to deal with the slew of people who might disagree with my characterization. So just to be clear, Schedule One is uh, no medical benefit yeah no medical value high potential for abuse that's what marijuana was for the longest time that's what yeah. lsd and mushrooms and it's stuff were too right and i'm sure it's probably a lot of the same way in canada but when you look at and look in my drug days i tried just about every substance known to man isn't cocaine um, scheduled too yeah sure is yeah <laughs> and <sometimes. laughs> oh, God. Yeah, they use it sometimes in dental procedures to numb people. Um, but when you look at the schedules, it just makes absolutely no sense, man. It, it just doesn't. That's where we'll end it for part one. Make sure to subscribe to the show and check out part two with Gregory Lake. We continue to talk about his first book, Psychedelics and Mental Health Series, Psilocybin, which is available on Amazon, and I'll leave a link to it and to his group on Facebook. If you have a comment or anything you'd like to share on the podcast, email me at twotemplespodcast at gmail.com. The best way to support Two Temples is by clicking subscribe and sharing the show with friends and on social media. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now.